You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. Happy Palm Sunday. I want us to look together at John chapter 12 as, well, maybe not everyone knows, I'm uh, preaching through Luke's gospel. Uh, last week we had Abraham with us. Uh, after Easter Sunday, we'll uh, return to Luke's gospel to look at the temptations uh, that uh, Jesus endured. But this morning we're in John chapter 12, and for little theologians, I'm, you know, you know, don't you, what I'm going to ask you to draw. It seems like it's been a while since I've gotten art from you because we've had, uh, we had Abraham preaching and we had Pat preaching. But I would love to get some pictures uh, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So there you have it, right? Simple. So as, as you're drawing your picture of Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem, uh, listen carefully to how I describe that experience. That's how I'm going to open up uh, that, the first point of the sermon, just describe some of the things that are happening when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. All of us should look at John chapter 12, beginning at, uh, at verse 12. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the verse together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your preacher. Father, would you be with me that I really would be yours, belonging to you as we belong to you as a holy nation a royal priesthood, would you make me yours particularly as I preach, that uh, these words, Father, they wouldn't be mine but yours. Thank you for superintending your word as we gather to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, 12 through 19. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, this is God's Word. I want to begin with another scene of a gathering of people. This, this scene in Jerusalem is a gathering of a large number of people. Jesus doesn't enter into a ghost town. And this scene is a scene that happened uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. I, uh, I like soccer. I uh, follow soccer. And, you know, uh, uh, the world of soccer has uh, been infected with these large crowds where people are at soccer matches and just a whole, a whole bunch of people die as a result. And 
Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, a fairly significant moment like that uh, happened in Brussels. And it was, uh, it was a big uh, game between an English team and an Italian team. And uh, during the, well, actually just before the match began, uh, there was taunting in the, uh, in the crowd, uh, fans of one team against fans of another. And one group of fans actually moved, moved against another group of fans. And ultimately, um, the, the group, of, uh, group of fans that had, was try, they were trying to defend themselves were, were uh, crushed against concrete. And uh, nearly 40 people died in the crush against the concrete until finally the wall just, it just fell down. And it was a really uh, gripping uh, scene in the world of soccer. And it comes to mind because I was reading a book um, in which uh, it's written by a soccer fan, uh, Nick Hornby. And he describes this event. And I think I've shared this. I hope I haven't shared this from the pulpit before. But I, I've done that before, use the same illustration. But it's a gripping scene because in, uh, in this book, uh, the writer is saying he was in Italy and he was teaching uh, a, a class, teaching English to Italian students. And they get together after class and they watch this event on TV. And it's striking the way this man describes the event because here he is watching a, a sporting event that's being delayed. And um, the, the Italian kids that he's with, they don't get why it's delayed. But the broadcast is in English. He knows exactly why it's delayed. And it's delayed because a lot of English people have just killed a lot of Italian, Italian people. And he's experiencing this in Italy, and he's describing this, this massive crowd in which it should be a gathering of happy people, and it isn't. It's a gathering of people where, where a lot, you know, 40 are killed, 600 are injured. And that scene has just, just made a lasting impression on my mind. And I think about it when I look at this scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. You know, crowds are just unique, aren't they? There's something that happens in this mentality of a bunch of people gathering together that sometimes the crowd is doing stuff they don't even know what they're doing. They just, they just aren't aware of what they're doing. Uh, they're bustling against one another. They're fighting against one another. They're a part of a group of people that they feel everyone else is a part of. And they're moving in one direction, but as they're doing so, they're killing people. And when we look at Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, this would be exactly the time of the year, the one time of the year in which this city would be most out of control. Most out of control. And this is the city, this is the time in which Jesus comes. This massive uh, a boiling pot of humanity, people running hither and yon. And Jesus enters right into that crowd and with his, with his body displays the gospel of grace. And we get to look at that scene this morning uh, at John chapter 12. And I want to start just by describing the first century context. That's point one. And then point two is describing not just that, that original context, what's happening at the time, but I want to describe what's happening in the context of the story of redemption. Right? Not just the context of first century Judaism, but the context of the story of redemption. What is God doing by bringing Jesus into this massive city? And then I want to finish by asking this question. What is the context of March 30th? We have to go home after this service, and we're going to go to sleep, and we're going to get up in the morning. And I want you to ask, I want you to do this every Monday morning. What does those words that that minister brought Sunday morning, what, what, what do those words have to do 
with Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. What, what does this mean for my life? And that's an important context that I think is addressed in the passage. But first, uh, just, just the, uh, the first century context. You know, John has told us that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem several times. Uh, when, you, when you scan uh, John's gospel, Jesus has gone uh, over his three years of public ministry, he's gone to Jerusalem at least four times. At least four times. And in fact, the first time that he goes to Jerusalem is recorded in John chapter 2, in John's gospel. In John chapter 2, Jesus is there, and uh, Jesus, there are many people, John tells us, that actually believed in Jesus. Okay, John chapter 2. We're in John chapter 12. And what happens is with all of those, those occurrences in his life where he goes to Jerusalem, the situation gets more and more and more tense. And in, and in fact, it gets so tense that it is very dangerous at the end of his public ministry, what we've just read. It is very, uh, very tense when he goes to Jerusalem. So at least four times, maybe more over a three-year period, and there's always this rise in hostility and opposition to Jesus' ministries. He goes to Jerusalem, even to the point of this particular trip to Jerusalem that we've just looked at. His disciples gave him this advice, don't go there, they're going to stone you. That's the advice in John chapter 11, don't go there, they're going to stone you. Why would you go to Jerusalem right now? Maybe there was a time in your public ministry where you could go to Jerusalem. That would have been a good idea. This is a really bad idea. And it's a bad idea because Jesus' life is in danger. Now, Jesus, of course, disagrees. Jesus believes that there is a pressing need to go to Jerusalem. But I want you to consider not just one pressing need to go to Jerusalem, but I want you to consider two. You know, here's a pressing need to go to Jerusalem that you may not have thought about. Uh, Bethany is a city just outside of Jerusalem. And when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is actually in the house with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, siblings. And Jesus, John tells us, spends time in their house. And I think that when we read that, that should conjure in our minds one of those other occasions where Jesus went to Jerusalem, even though it was a really bad idea. And he went to Jerusalem that he might raise Lazarus from the dead. He went to Jerusalem that he might raise from the dead a man whom he loved. And so there's this hurdle, don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to stone you, and yet he still went to Jerusalem that he might help his friend Lazarus. You know, it's not as if we have tons of passages in Scripture to tell us what Jesus' friendship with Lazarus was like. We just, we don't have those passages. But we know that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. We know that Jesus had great affection for Lazarus. Lazarus, his, incidentally, his name actually means God is my helper. God is my helper. Church tradition says that when Lazarus was risen from the dead, he was around 30 years old, and he lived for another 30 years. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But imagine those, those remaining 30 years of Lazarus' life. Those, those were years that he lived because his Savior really was his helper. And that's his name. God is my helper. And 30 years of his life, his life actually inculcated the very gospel that he preached. So Jesus, uh, even against the threat of death, was willing to stare that threat in the eye that he might go to Bethany 
and raise Lazarus from the dead. And when he does that, uh, John is very clear and he says, Jesus from this point on can't walk openly anywhere. In fact, the Pharisees were so angered by the following that Jesus was gathering that the Pharisees actually wanted to kill Lazarus. Do you think that he would have died a second time? I mean, again, complete speculation, but they actually wanted to kill the man whom, uh, whom had been raised from the dead. But at this point, Jesus responds to that pressing need to go to Jerusalem and to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then this is the, press, the second pressing need. And in this pressing need, it's not to save Lazarus, to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's to save Jerusalem. It's to offer salvation to the entire world. That the message would go out to all the nations and that anyone can be raised from the dead like Lazarus. The first pressing need is to raise Lazarus from the dead. The second pressing need is to save Jerusalem, that that message of the resurrection would be proclaimed in the whole world. And so Jesus, when he goes to Jerusalem this time, John gives us that little hint by saying, and he went to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's really where this scene should begin. I really thought about going further back in John 12 so that we could read that scene with Jesus in that home. But there you have it. Jesus goes and he spends time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then the next day shows up. That's what we read this morning. And the next day he enters into Jerusalem to do for Jerusalem what he had already done for Lazarus. Now, a couple of uh, just quick quick things to note uh, about Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. The first is this. Josephus, who's writing in the first century, he says that Jerusalem would sometimes have as many as 2.7 million people in it. That's astounding to me. 2.7 million people. Now, that's probably a high figure. Scholars say, I mean, it's astounding to them as well. But the audience of, in Jerusalem was enormous. And not only was it enormous, but representatives from the entire world are there. I, I think that's part of what's, uh, what's being alluded to in verse 19. The Pharisees are concerned about the whole world going to Jerusalem. And they're probably talking primarily about the Jewish world, but it is a cosmopolitan gathering swelling the size of Jerusalem to nearly three million people. And then there's something else that we need to keep in mind of, not just the, size, the number of people that are there, but the fact that they're representatives from all over the world, but also this third thing, and that's, that's this, virtually no one understands what's going on. Virtually no one understands what's going on. Not even the disciples understand what exactly is happening. I mean, some people are, are, are around Jesus because they, they want to see Lazarus or they want to see another sign like the sign of Lazarus. Some people are around Jesus because they want him dead, just want to kill him. And some people are around Jesus because they want Jesus to be their political hero. That's what the laying down of palms would be. That is, that is a sign of victory. And they see in Jesus a, a political hero of some sort, and so they take up the task of offering that symbol of political victory. But it's important to see that there is a great cacophony of confusion 
when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. A lot of people from all over the world, very few understand at all what's going on. That's the world that Jesus walks into. And does that feel like our world? To me, to me it feels like our world. We, we live in a world that's just riddled with confusion. Uh, issues that the church used to understand very clearly uh, are now uh, mired in confusion. Uh, issues having to do with identity and sexuality. Uh, issues having to do with a relationship of our career and vocation to Christian life and ministry. Um, issues that have to do with, you know, what's the best thing to do with my money. I hope that you can look out in the world and just see that it's, it's just a mass of confusion. Even within the church, there's a lot of confusion. And yet Jesus walks right into the middle of it. It's almost as if it's this massive spinning machinery that can kill anyone, right? So you just assume people are going to get hurt. There's just way too many folks together in this one city from all over the world, and Jesus is just adding the last variable to this equation. Someone's going to get hurt, and Jesus isn't afraid. In fact, he's the one who does get hurt. But let's, let's move on. This is just the first century context. Where does this fit in God's plan for redemption? And I think there's two things that need to be noted here. Um, this uh, image of a king is very important. Jesus is a king who brings a certain kind of peace, doesn't he? The kind of peace that Jesus brings as king is peace with God. It's not a political peace. It's a, it's a peace with God. So that's the first thing. Jesus is a king who brings peace with God. And the second thing is this, is that Jesus is a king who actually works for the Father. He's a king who works for the Father. Um, the king that brings peace with God. You know, there was a time in Jesus's ministry, you can read about it in John 6, where people wanted to make Jesus a king. And he actually withdrew himself. He, he didn't want to be made a king, and that would make sense to us. But now, he's not fighting back that king mentality at all. He walks right into the city, and he receives the praises that are due to a king. And we might wonder, you know, why is he doing that? Well, John says that Jesus is fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9. We looked at Genesis 49 earlier in the service rather than Zechariah 9, but if you look at how Zechariah closes this work, what you find in Zechariah 9 is that there is this one true God and he loves his people, but his people are utterly pathetic. Utterly pathetic. The only reason his people are in Jerusalem is because a more powerful king released them and allowed them to go to Jerusalem. And as they're in Jerusalem, they're trying to build a temple, but it's not done yet. And then they're going to build walls. But it is a pathetic body of people. They are so vulnerable. They are so weak. There is nothing that would make these people stand out as having any specialness at all. But what's, what's remarkable about Zechariah is God loves them. Do you hear that? God loves them. God loves these people. And despite the fact that they're pathetic and they're sinful, God has extraordinary affection for them. In fact, so much affection that when you read Zechariah, Zechariah was very popular to the New Testament authors, by the way. You read about God's great affection even to the point of piercing his own son. Even to the point of piercing his own son. 
Zechariah is a letter of warmth and affection towards a people who just don't deserve any of that. And you should think about Jesus and his warmth and affection for Lazarus because he wept over Lazarus. But Luke tells us that as soon as Jesus walked into Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem too. That affection that Jesus brings is unlike any king that the world has ever seen. This is a king who comes with strength and with power and who comes to provide peace, but he comes to provide the kind of peace that reconciles us to God, that draws us to God. In fact, when Luke tells of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he says that on the lips of Jesus, these words were heard, would that you had known the things that make for peace. Would that you had known the things that make for peace. Jesus comes into this embroiled city packed with people from all over the world, a people who are just utterly clueless and, and give them too much time. They're just going to trample each other and a lot of, of humanity is going to die. Just a wreck. And Jesus loves them and he comes to them and he desires to be not a king of political power, not a king that gives them strength in all the world to make all the world their servants, not a king to build massive edifices that would shine in the sunlight and make their kingdom look so great and wonderful. He is a king who enters to bring them into a relationship with God. That kind of peace. And the second thing is this, is that Jesus is the kind of king who actually works for the Father. Everything that Jesus does, he does to satisfy the will of the Father. And so when Jesus comes into the city, uh, he knows that this is the Father's will to draw these people to himself. He is the one from Psalm 118. It's quoted in our passage. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that a funny expression from Psalm 118? He is the one who comes in, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and we, we often think that coming in the name of the Lord is all about me. I come in the name of the Lord, right? I come in his name, which is true. You should do all things in the name of the Lord. But Psalm 118, read it carefully. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is Jesus. He's the one who comes in the name of the Father. And in Zechariah 9, he rides that colt because it was his Father's will that he would come riding that colt. He comes in the name of God. And another way to understand that is that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem smelling like death. You know I say that. The day before he was anointed... And Jesus calls that anointing, anointing for his own burial. He comes into the city, this massive crowd of people, and he's smelling like death as he comes. Why is he smelling like death? Because this is God's will in Zechariah. This is God's will that, that, that he would actually come into the city and offer his life and die so that his blood would then cover the people that they might be reconciled to God. He comes as a king who brings peace with God, but he comes as a king who serves the will of God to do what, the, to do what God the Father demands of him. Now, what does this mean for tomorrow? Does it mean anything for tomorrow? This is a wonderful historic exercise. 
and it's an exercise that helps to tie the story of Scripture together. I can appreciate that. But you appreciate nothing unless you receive this as a message for you. Because there's one thing that all, everyone in this crowd has in common. You ready for this? There's one thing. Why are all of these people in Jerusalem? You know the answer. They're there because of the Passover. It's the Passover celebration that swells the number of people in Jerusalem. And they're all there for the Passover. In fact, everyone is there professing that we are here in some way because blood's involved. Because blood is somehow involved. And you can read the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And there's a Hebrew people that are in the nation of Egypt. And God comes into that city and he kills the firstborn of not just the Hebrew people, but of the Egyptian people, except for one thing. If they're covered by the blood of the lamb, if they're covered by the blood of the lamb, they will be safe. And the thing that we have to understand is that not only do all those people in Jerusalem have that in common, but all these people here have that in common. In order for us to taste true peace, true peace. We need to be a people that are covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no way around it. This is the heart of Christianity. And on Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into that city, the crowd doesn't know anything about themselves. But Jesus is going to inform them, and he's going to say, what you need is my blood. You're going back to that scene in uh, Brussels, the soccer match. You know, you could have pulled any one person out of that match and said, your actions right now are killing someone. You could have reasoned with them. You could have said, you're, you know, your pushing is killing someone. And just one by one, you just pull them out, you tell them, and you put them back. Isn't that a funny image? You pull them out and you tell them. You're killing someone and you put them back. And this is the message of the gospel to us this morning. This is the message that I offer to you individually there is nothing that you can do to find peace in this world unless you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. True peace is, a is to be reconciled with the true God. Your career is not going to bring you this peace. In fact, the kind of peace that Jesus is offering is the kind of peace that you can have even when the career tanks. Your money, right? Your money is not going to bring you this peace. In fact, the kind of peace that Jesus brings can come to you even in your poverty and comes especially in your poverty. Your health, your vitality, your strength, it's not, it's not peace. That's not peace. You don't need a kind, the kind of king that is going to keep your body healthy. You need a kind of king that's going to reconcile you to God. That's your reality for Monday morning. That's the king that you need. A king of peace that reconciles you to God. A king of peace that serves the will of God. That you might be truly safe before that God. And he goes into that city already smelling of death. And he dies for you in that city. This is Palm Sunday. Welcome to Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for saving us in Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to your heavenly Father giving even your body for our life. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for speaking to us out of your word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.